What a great opportunity we have to gather this morning to talk about the hope that we have in Christ. Over the last several weeks, we've been talking through this series called The Walking Dead. We've talked about spiritual warfare, we've talked about Satan, we've talked about hell. And this morning we talk about demons, very edifying conversation over the last four weeks. But the truth is, there are spiritual forces at work that do not seek our good. And it's important for us to go to Christ, to go to His sacred word for encouragement. And this morning as we talk about the reality of demonic powers, their influence, the dangers, but ultimately they're conquering and and they're vanquishing, uh, this is a good thing for us to look at so that we can be in the battle. One of the things that is always just a tremendous challenge is in the church, most of the time when we get together, we sit in rows facing forward. We've taken what God intended to be an army and we've turned it into an audience. And friends, we don't need another Bible study. We don't need another worship service. We need Christians to do what they're called to do. And the problem is, <clears throat> many times when we talk about spiritual warfare, we like to figure out you know, what the demon's name is or what power he has or what his code name is. But we don't want to do anything about it. We just want to expand our Bible study knowledge. And friends, this morning, I hope today that as you listen to this message, you don't just satisfy your curiosity about spiritual things, but you, you ponder for yourself what God's message is to you, what you are to do with these words. And so our story this morning begins in Luke chapter 8. And we'll begin in Luke chapter 8, uh, verse 26. But it's important for me to give just a little bit of context, a little bit of the backstory to this tremendous uh, power encounter that we see in this passage. While the story we're looking at begins in verse 26, it, it begins with the continuation of a sailing adventure. There, uh, immediately preceding this, is a howling tempest that ends up producing hysterical disciples who are about to meet a shrieking demon. It is not a good day. They sail through a typhoon, a hurricane. They go crazy while Jesus is asleep in the boat. Master, don't you care that we're about to perish? And Jesus has sent them on this boat trip for a very specific reason that he hasn't told them. Because if he told them, they would not have wanted to go. And so this is a very fast-paced adventure story. Uh, It's not a uh, Gilligan's Island cruise. It is uh, something very serious. And so while it's very fast-paced, it is very clarifying because uh, this is very early in Jesus' ministry. If you think back, if you were going to flip through the first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke, uh, John the Baptist appears on the scene in Luke chapter 3. Chapter 1 and 2 are all the angel announcements of Jesus' birth. Chapter 3 is the story of John the Baptist. Chapter 4 is the story of Jesus' temptation. In chapters 5 and 6, just two chapters before this, is when the disciples are first called to follow Jesus. So this is very early in the disciples' getting to know you period of this man that they've decided to follow. And as they come out of this storm, as they... they freak out about what is going on. Jesus wakes up, 
and says, Oh, ye have little faith. And he speaks to the storm a word, and it stops. These are sailing men. They don't, you don't, storms don't just disappear like that. <clears throat> and they ask a famous question in the verse immediately preceding our passage. In chapter 8, verse 25, he said, Where is the, your faith? And they were fearful and, and amazed. And the disciples said to one another, Who is this man that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? They're about to find out. They asked a great question, and every great question deserves an answer, doesn't it? Be careful what you ask, because Jesus will answer you. So immediately preceding that, in chapter 8, verse 4, we see that Jesus had become the equivalent of the next Jerusalem idol. He had been preaching on the other side of the, uh, of the, the lake, and it says a large crowd was coming together. And those, there were people coming from all kinds of cities. They were journeying to him. He was in the middle of tremendous success. People were streaming to him from all kinds of areas. Word begins to spread that Jesus is in the area, and people are going to travel to go find him. Well, in the middle of this apparent success, Jesus rather randomly says, hey guys, let's get in the boat and go across the lake. Now, I don't know which one of the disciples would have been Jesus' PR agent. Doubtless, they were not pleased. Jesus, what in the world are you doing? You have them literally eating out of your hand. They are listening. And and more than that, they're, they're not just eating this food that you're making. They're actually listening to your preaching. I can understand them showing up for the food, but the preaching part... They're, they're, they're listening. They're engaged. And you just want to go on a pleasure cruise? You want to leave this? We've got revival breaking out. But Jesus' merry band follows what their master says. And they go on this little boating outing. And they run smack into a storm that I, I believe was not a normal storm. These are sailing men, the disciples. They are fishermen. They have seen storms before, but this is a storm that scares the sailors. This is not a natural storm. And I believe that this storm, because of what is about to happen in our passage, because of the ministry that Jesus is about to engage in, I believe that this storm that they face is supernatural in its origin, diabolical in its plan to prevent Jesus from crossing the lake to engage in the important ministry he's about to undertake. So along the way, the disciples learn some important things that disciples of all ages need to learn. And the first of these is that demons are a serious evil power present in the world. Demons are a serious evil power present in the world. Look with me at verses 26 through 29. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. And when Jesus came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. 
For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Now we know why Jesus didn't give his disciples a travel itinerary. Our first stop on our seven-day cruise is a demon-possessed man. I don't know that they would have signed up for what was coming if they knew. But immediately upon landing, they are met by this man. We understand why Jesus didn't tell him, and we see something about what the demons did to this man. It's interesting to look at the details. We see three things. Uh, Number one, the man is described as a man who was possessed with demons, plural. He had lost all autonomy. He was controlled. He had no um, jurisdiction over his own faculties. He would do crazy things. He was uh, ostracized. He was controlled. Number two, he had been socially isolated. It says a couple things about him. He had no clothes. He had no house. If you don't wear clothes, you will be socially isolated. You're weird. There's something wrong with this guy socially. Now, it's not a problem with the man in and of himself. It is the effect of the demonic possession. So he had lost all autonomy. He was controlled. He had been socially isolated. And number three, he was acquainted with death and destruction. Now, I don't know about you, but anytime we even drive by a cemetery, my kids don't like it. Ooh, spooky. This man lived there. Now, cemeteries were not kind of places where you today where they're manicured uh, with a nice headstone, perhaps flowers and some nice landscaping. Uh, these were very utilitarian. They were barren places. They were not gardens. It was not the kind of place that you hung out. And yet it was the place where this man lived. They had so controlled and destroyed this man's life. He was possessed by the demons. And yet when Jesus shows up on the scene, what do they do? They beg for mercy. It's ironic. Beings that have so destroyed and been so merciless to this man, it's ironic for them to request to not be tormented. And in reaction to this man's appearance, it's interesting that we don't have any word what the, how the disciples reacted. How would you react if you met this man? If you had the chance to be a fly on the wall on this cruising ship, and you get off and step on the land, and this gathering demoniac comes up to you, what would you think? Would you judge him based on the fact that he's kind of crazy, kind of strange, kind of naked? It's easy for us to forget sometimes that this man had seen some seriously better days than this day. Obviously, at some point, he had been clothed. At some point, he had lived in a house. At some point, he had some self-restraint, some control of his faculties. But he had now come to a point that he was so controlled by demonic influence that in Matthew's telling of this story, it tells us that he caused harm to all who passed by. That's why when Jesus' boat landed and Jesus got out, he saw fresh food. 
new people for him to torment. And he came running directly to Jesus and his band of disciples. Mark's retelling of the story says that the man screamed constantly, day and night. What a freakish scene. And yet the man is a victim. We don't look at him as a victim. We look at him as a person to be avoided at all costs. So some serious words about spiritual warfare and demonic influence. Some people in hearing a story like this say there's no way for us to believe in this kind of junk. Demons, a little red guy with a pitchfork. The the problem is Jesus would significantly disagree with that kind of assessment. One of the things I think is, is, is kind of good for us to emphasize here is we don't see an apparition. We don't ever see the demon. You know, what did he look like? Did he have fangs? You know, was he, did he have a sheet over him with eye holes cut out? Did he look like Casper? We don't technically ever see the demon in this story, do we? What do we see? We see the effects of the demon on the man. We see a man. We don't see the demon. While unseen, the demonic nature and influence is seen in its destructive effects. Those things that we just mentioned. Loss of autonomy. Um, loss of control, social isolation, being acquainted with death and destruction, being a destroyer, screaming day and night. And so while uh, the demon may be hard to see, uh, demonic influence is not. And so just going off of these three things here, I ask you, have you seen demonic influence in our world? Do we see people who have lost autonomy who are controlled? Absolutely. Absolutely. You see people controlled by lust for power. You see people controlled by lust for other things. You see people controlled by drink. You see people controlled by drugs. You see people controlled by an insatiable appetite for crime. People are controlled. Do we see people who are socially isolated? Absolutely. We see people who uh, allow their family to be destroyed through divorce. We hear the story of dads that are deadbeats, of moms that are abusive, of people who have weak commitment to the church, of bonds that hold our society together being destroyed. The truth is, even in a room like this where we all sit together, there are people who are lonely. There are people who do not know how to find the fellowship that they so desperately need. We see demonic influence all around us. Do we see death and destruction? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Murder, abortion, euthanasia. These are not just theoretical possibilities. There would be no need for law enforcement if death and destruction were not a reality. And so two equal ditches that we need to avoid as we drive down the road of life. We want to stay on the road. We don't want to end up in the ditch. Two opposite reactions for us to avoid when we talk about all this kind of spiritual stuff of demons, of Satan, of of evil spiritual influence. The first thing that we don't want to do is have a complete and total dismissal. We can't deny this. Jesus says we have to believe in this. Jesus here has a face-to-face encounter with a demon. We, as followers of Christ, cannot be cavalier in our attitude related to this kind of spiritual reality. We can't dismiss it. 
But on the other hand, we can't go to the other extreme and see a demon behind every rock. If bad things happen to you, the very first thing you need to ask is, have I made a bad decision? Are these natural consequences for bad decision making? But we have to, we, while we can't overemphasize uh, the demonic, uh, we, we can't underestimate or neglect the reality of personal responsibility. Some choices may indeed make us even more susceptible to demonic influence. And so let it, let it be sufficient for us to say that there are all kinds of spiritual realities around us of which we're typically unaware. If demons work in such a way to make us be controlled, to help us to be socially isolated, to contribute to death and destruction, then friends, demonic influence is all around us. We just don't realize it. To complete this picture of just complete and total inability, utter helplessness and destruction, uh, Luke gives us a flashback of this man's life to say, listen, demonic influence is is so bad, here's the story of what happened to this man. Verse 29, it says, Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had, past tense, it had seized him many times. He was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. This was a daily experience for this man. It was bad news. And this is a hard truth to illustrate. I can't, I can't conjure up a cute story from my life to talk about demonic influence. Uh, There's no Reader's Digest tale. There's no cute little poem to kind of tie this up with a nice, neat little bow. We have to look at the fact that this story introduces us to this significant evil power. But it's important for us to not stop here because the demons are not the focus of this story. While the story may start off black and dark, and desperate and helpless, like a spotlight piercing the darkness of a stage, Jesus appears. This d- demon-possessed man sees unknowingly this group of men land on the beach, and he runs to torment them. And immediately upon getting within visual distance and recognizing Jesus, the demon knows that he is in trouble. And so as we see Jesus come, It's interesting for us to see how the demons spoke to him. They recognized him right away. And while this demon had exercised complete and total control over this man, had been the sovereign over this man's life, how did the demons speak to Jesus? They begged. They begged. And so if the disciples needed to learn about the serious power of evil, remember they asked that question, who is this man, that even the wind and the waves obey him? Well, they also need to learn, number two, that Jesus is the conquering king over this world. We see this in verses 30 through 33 as Jesus rescues this man. Jesus responds to the demon and asks him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now, there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. 
Now, immediately when we say the word exorcism, you have all kinds of interesting Hollywood images that come to your mind. Um, I tried to make a doll of reed to make its head spin and kind of, you know, spew green goo, and we just weren't going to do that here this morning. But you all know the things that are portrayed when we talk about exorcism. Interestingly, there's no special effects. There's nobody's heads popping off. There's no gross stuff that happens here. There's a conversation that happens between Jesus and the demon, and the demons go. Because Jesus works through his words. The same way God spoke the world into existence. The truth is exorcisms are not all that uncommon in the New Testament. We've already seen several. If you've been reading through Luke's gospel and had gotten to chapter 8, there are several sprinkled all throughout his gospel. However, this is the only encounter that includes a conversation between Jesus and the demons. And so there are several things that make this really quite unique as exorcisms go. Number one, it is the first miracle done in Gentile territory. Everything up to this point had been done in Jewish land. And so this is a way to show that Jesus' sphere of influence is expanding. Number two, another thing that made this significant is when he asks the demon his name, the demon says his name is what? Legion. Why? Because many demons had entered him. Now, we all know the story of Mary Magdalene. She had seven demons. Multiple possessions is not a new thing. But this is multiple, multiple possessions. This man has an entire legion. In Roman military terms, a legion was somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 soldiers. In Mark chapter 5, we're told specifically, we're not told here, how many pig are in the herd. But according to Mark, there were 2,000 pig. So how do we figure out how many demons possessed this man? Was it somewhere, according to Roman military terms, 4,000 to 6,000? Was there one demon for every pig? Were there 2,000? The point is not the number. The, the point is that there were many. They're not trying to be scientific. They're just saying there is an entire army of evil, supernatural beings involved in this man's life. And Jesus is one person. He is severely outnumbered. But he is not outmatched. Remember the demons, when they recognize him, begin begging immediately. And so number three, one of Luke's points is to display Jesus' amazing power over all kinds of realms of life. We see in the story of the storm, Jesus' power over wind and over wave. In this, this story, we see Jesus' power over demons. In Jesus' healing ministry, we see Jesus' power exercised over disease. And in the raising of Lazarus, we even see Jesus' power over death. Luke is systematically trying to say, whatever is out there that is destructive, Jesus is more powerful than that. Friends, that's a great thing for us. When we struggle seeing what is happening in our world, We have no cause to despair. The only reason we have cause to despair is if we believe that we've lost. If we believe that Jesus is powerless to change the circumstance. But Luke is showing here that Jesus' power is amazing, complete, and total over everything that would dare to raise its head against his authority. There's a tendency 
sometimes for us to think of Jesus' help as just spiritual. You ever had someone in a Sunday school class or in a church service say, man, I'm, I'm really struggling. I got, I got this problem. And if you're a pious Christian, what do you say? I'll pray for you. No, I'm not going to help you one lick. But I'll, I'll pray for you. I'm not going to give you one penny. But I'll, I'll pray for you. Sometimes we tend to see the help that Jesus provides us is kind of spiritual, very vague. How would the demon-possessed man indicate Jesus helped him? It might have been spiritual in the sense that he was casting out the demons, but that spiritual act was very practical for this guy. Very practical for this guy. We don't typically, when we talk about evangelism, when we talk about unbelievers, I don't know that that's the best way for us to refer to people. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian... What's, what's a better way to refer to people? Non-Christians, unbelievers? I don't know. I don't know what's the, what's the best way to refer to people. They are non-Christians. They are unbelievers. Regardless of the terminology that you use, when we talk about unbelievers, we don't uh, tend to look at them as under the power and influence of Satan. We tend to think that their life is kind of neutral. They're not for them. They're not, they're not for Jesus. They're not against Jesus. They're just neutral. Somewhere in the middle. Jesus says rather emphatically that he who is not with me is against me. There's no middle ground. We have a a tendency to go against the testimony of Scripture. And I think one of the things that's important for us to realize, a lot of times as the culture begins to change, you hear this terminology, culture warriors, that we have... Biblical values versus secular values. And we get into these nasty debates and these fights. Friends, we have to keep in our mind, first and foremost, that people are not our enemy. People who don't share our values, people who don't love Christ, people who don't believe in God, are victims of the enemy, but not the enemy. Don't water down your convictions at all. But if the way that you speak about your convictions puts down another person, friend, would you simply consider the fact that you might need to repent of, not seeing, of seeing them as the enemy instead of seeing them as victims of the enemy? I have a feeling if this demon-possessed man came here into church, we would do the same thing the townspeople did, take him out in a field and try to tie him up. We'll take care of the problem. They saw him as the enemy. But Jesus saw him as a victim of the enemy. If the reaction of the demons was to recognize that they were conquered, it's great to see uh, that the demon-possessed man's reaction was to be converted. Even though they are defeated... The demons will never surrender. And so we've seen this power encounter. What's the end result? If we look at the different reactions to the the work of Jesus, we'll see some interesting things. Verses 34 through 37. When the herdsmen, herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. Then the people, they all went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, 
sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked Jesus to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear. And Jesus got into a boat and left. You get to the results here, and there's a whole lot of running going on. The demons run into the pigs. The pigs run down the hill. The shepherds run to town. The townspeople run back out. It's complete and total chaos. What do they find? Well, they see, uh, as we look at the reactions of several different groups of people, we see the demons begging, conquered, and vanquished. They're done with. They're gone. They are off the scene. There, there is no more demonic influence in this region. Jesus had come in and he had completely and totally cleaned house. The formerly demon-possessed man is described how? As a converted person, now clothed in his right mind. And lo and behold, sitting at the feet of Jesus in the position of a disciple. Radical 180 degree change in this man's life. And the formerly peaceful townspeople who were enjoying their bacon trade, their pork business, the formerly peaceful townspeople have found fear while the formerly tormented demoniac has found peace. Funny how Jesus upsets the apple cart. The townspeople's reaction is a very stark contrast with the people's reaction on the other side of the lake. According to verse 40, when Jesus returns, he gets back in the boat and goes. It says, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. But the people on the other side of the lake, all the people, according to verse 37, all the people of the country of the Gerasenes asked him to leave. The people loved him on one side and waited expectantly for him. However, on this side of the lake, all of the people asked him to leave in spite of the firsthand testimony of what had happened. They see the evidence of the health and the restoration that Jesus has brought, and yet they ask him to leave. And oddly enough, from the previous story, we know that there were other people who traveled to this side of the lake in the boat with Jesus. Where do we see him in this story? Strangely absent. Strangely quiet. Almost invisible. And so at this point, we get a much fuller and clearer picture of our king being devotedly focused on his mission. Jesus had left the throngs of revival in Galilee to come across the lake for this one man, despite the fact that everyone else in the region would reject him. If you were a disciple, would you be upset that Jesus left the many to pursue the one? While we mostly attribute Gentile evangelism to the Apostle Paul, we see that Jesus himself is a missionary God who left the many to go and get the one. And yet, while Jesus is leaving and getting in the boat and going back, we see that he's not done with his mission just yet. 
At this point in the story, Jesus has been pretty meek. Everyone who has asked him a, asked him a question, asked him for a favor, has gotten it. You remember the demons? They said, don't send us to the abyss, send us to the pigs. And Jesus said, go to the pigs. The townspeople come up and go, wow, Jesus, great show that you put on, uh, but we don't want you here. Will you please leave? And Jesus says, you know what? I'm God. Uh, I can do whatever I want, but you're asking me to leave. I'll leave. Jesus has granted everyone's request. And so now at the very end of the story, this man who is not even one of the band of of Jesus' 12 disciples decides that if the disciples are going to sit there and be quiet and not do anything, well, doggone it, Jesus, I'll go to work for you. Look what he says in verses 38 and 39. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him. There's that word again. Demons begged him, and now the formerly demon-possessed man is begging him that he might accompany him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Surprisingly, for the first time in this storyline, Jesus denies someone's request. What do you do when Jesus tells you no? Jesus saying no is not necessarily a sign of his disfavor. As a matter of fact, in this story, Jesus is not refusing the man's request as much as he is refocusing it. You see, not every disciple is called to a foreign field. And as Jesus has come and worked his miracle of conquering spiritual powers, he realizes that he himself is too foreign, too extreme, too much for these people to be able to relate to. And so as our Lord gets in the boat to go, he did the very next best thing that he could do. If he couldn't send himself, he would send a missionary. And he sent the man whose life had been touched and dramatically changed by Jesus. And the end result of this entire story is that the man goes home, and according to Luke, he preaches to who? His family. No, the entire city. Now, how much preaching do you have to do to say that you've preached to the entire city? I don't know. I, I haven't preached to the entire city of Rock Hill. I don't know anybody that can say that they've done that. But this man is recorded as preaching to the entire city. If you go to Mark's recounting of this story, it says that the man didn't just preach in his city, but went throughout all of the Decapolis. Decapolis is the word for a 10-city region. So the man didn't just stop at his city. He didn't go, all right, I'm done. Jesus said, go preach to my city. I get to retire now. Once he got done there, he went to the next city, and he went to the next city, and he went to the next city until he had preached the gospel everywhere he could get to. What an amazing story. What a great way for us to conclude a series on the walking dead on spiritual warfare by seeing how Jesus went, all right, I don't have the time to stay here and preach, but I can take a man whose life has been changed and I can get my work done. So what are the points of application for us? I think that there are several. You'll see a couple bullet points here. In the words of the famous theologian Darth Vader, Never underestimate the power of the dark side. 
is Christians, we do not need to fear demonic possession, but we can certainly be the target of demonic oppression. Friend, if you have an anger problem, you are opening yourself up to demonic influence. Christian, if your marriage is not everything that God would have it to be, you are opening yourself up to an influence that you do not want to open yourself up to. If you do things in secret that you would never do in public, you're living in darkness. The Bible says that when people live in the light, they have nothing to hide because even our failures, we know that Jesus has taken them and he has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. So we don't have, we don't have to hide. We don't have to fake. We can say we're sinners saved by grace. And so if we should not underestimate the power of the dark side, likewise, we don't cower in fear because we know that Christ has absolutely, totally, and completely overcome the world. He can conquer all. That is Luke's point in telling us this story, is for us to know we can trust Christ in all circumstances. Have you gotten a bad report from the doctor? Jesus reigns supreme over that. Do you have secret aches in your heart that no one knows? Jesus can reign supreme over all of that. And the question I have to ask you is, what are you not believing Christ for? He has the power. Why suffer by yourself. I think if we're going to get the, the, the point of this passage, we have to ask ourselves, what do we value more than the souls of men? Watch out for the selfishness that cares for pigs more than people. Townspeople got very offended when Jesus messed with their finances. Jesus, what right do you have to make our not cash cow or cash pigs, go away. People aren't that interested in having Jesus around when he begins to mess with their livelihood. And so if, it, if we put a dollar amount on reaching souls for Christ, what would you be willing to pay in 2013 for us to reach someone for Christ? If it cost $1,000, if, if we could say, for every $1,000 you give, we'll reach someone for Christ. Do we have anyone that would give? What do you value practically more than the souls of men? We see from the life of the demoniac, if one of the marks of a transformed life is a willingness to tell others about Jesus, who are you telling? Jesus has performed no smaller miracle in saving your soul than he did in saving this demon-possessed man. If people who are away from Christ are all under satanic influence, if their mind is truly blinded to the truth of God, then it's a miracle whenever any person is converted. Not just in the most extreme stories. And I give you a very practical challenge. Our church is in the beginning stages of exploring new ways that we might see churches planted in areas where there is no gospel, where there are no believers around the world internationally. 
And this next weekend, we have a very special Christmas progressive dinner that if you buy a ticket to go, uh, listen, it, it might be a little expensive for you to go. I think it's uh, $50 a couple uh, to go to this meal. But 100% of your monies will go to support preaching the gospel in places where people, they, they, there are no churches, there are no Bibles, it is not translated into foreign languages, there are no preachers, there are no evangelists. It's the darkest place on the face of the earth. And listen, even if you can't go to the dinner, 100% of those monies that we'll raise next week will go to help support uh, Northside Baptist Church's international missions ministry. If you don't have the opportunity to go, do you have the opportunity to send someone? And if there's anything that I think as a church we need to learn, it's that God doesn't just have the power to save, as amazing as that is. He has the power to empower us to do his will. This demon-possessed man had never been to seminary. He had never been to Sunday school. He didn't have the opportunity to be an RA or a sunbeam. He was too old for that. He just knew that Jesus had changed his life and that Jesus had commissioned him to tell of the great things that he had done. And he did it with joy and with fervor. The only thing you needed to do to get this guy to share Jesus with you was take your hand off his mouth and he would do it. You may sit here this morning and go, I just don't have the personality to be able to do it. You may cower in fear about talking with your son or your daughter who is lost or your neighbor or your coworker. Friend, Jesus will never commission you for anything that he will not uh, resource you to do. So we think about Jesus' power over death, over disease, over nature, over demons. Friends, the reason he does this, the reason he demonstrates his power is to allow us to know that he will give his power to us to live for him faithfully. Will you do it? Join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this story. And we know that it's not just some little tale. It's not some cute little story demonstrating Jesus' power. It is a testimony of what you've done for each and every single one of us. That you have transferred us from the domain of darkness to your kingdom of marvelous light. And Lord, we thank you this morning for the work that you've done in our lives. Oh, Lord, we pray that you will help others to know that they do not need to be captively bound to the influences of this world, captive to the prince of the power of this air, but that you, mighty God, are willing to save. I pray that this morning, if there's anyone whose heart is pricked about going, oh, Lord Jesus, I need your power to escape from the things that I am facing, that they will come forward this morning uh, casting their cares and their trust totally and completely on you. Lord, for those of us who know you, make us bold. Give us power. Make us want it. Give us joy in the task. Give us purpose for our journey. Lord, make us the mighty army that you died to make us and help us to count the cost with joy and great expectation as you through your spirit work through us to carry your great commission to the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.